HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guest is Gail Taylor, owner and operator of Three Part Harmony Farm right here in Washington, D.C. Gail, thanks for being here. Thanks. It's so great to be here. And you've been on a few other shows on Full Service Radio in the studio, I understand. Yeah, and I used to live in Adams Morgan for five and a half years, so it always is really fun to come back here. Amazing. You're the most local guest, I think, we've ever had on the Farm Report. Great. I rode my bike here. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) That's great. Well, and um, speaking of riding your bike, it is freezing out today. Right? I mean, it, it's crazy how it just, I think it dropped like 25 degrees this morning. Um, yeah. We were just living in this world of extreme weather right now. Does does this cold snap, is this affecting your farm at all? Well, this is going to be the coldest November that I ever remember in my farming, brief farming career, 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it's, it's still normal. We're in the normal mm-hmm. range. It's like 10, 15 degrees colder than usual, but that we're getting freezing temperatures right now is normal. 
and normal weather makes me happy these days. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we do. I do appreciate farming in a place where it snows, in a place where the ground freezes. Um, I really appreciate the chance to have a break. Mm. We just completed our final CSA pickup today. 34-week season is fun and grueling all at the same time. Right. So it's nice. The farm needs a break. The farmers need a break. Everybody gets a break. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, I think a lot of times you talk about it the other way. Like, oh, it's great to have the whole, you know, continuous growing. <coughs> but right. It's like you're, you're working so hard when you're harvesting and planting that it makes sense to take a take a break and yeah and yeah. i think it's not just the working hard that's hard for me and i think the crew would say this too it's the postponement of regular life that you do during the farm season mm. that really starts to add up over a cumulative time period so now like my dentist office called me last week and i answered <laughs> the phone you know <laughs> all those little things yeah. that yeah you put off and put off because yeah. you don't have time for them yeah. yeah which are not really little it's like you want to stay on top of those things yeah yeah but you can't during the farm season right absolutely um, so, so I want to talk about your farm. So, um, I you had a, a recent feature in Civil Eats, which was, was yeah. really big about three part harmony and your work. Um, and I, I think it said that you were the first full like production farm within DC. Is that true? Yeah, I would say in this century. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Most people do say three part harmony farm is the first, and that's sort of true unless you take a step back and really think about the fact that this used to just be one big farm. Right. Um, Definitely. If you talk to people who grew up in the city or even people who moved to parts of Washington from South Carolina, North Carolina, they remember when there used to be farms everywhere, Hmm. Um, even like, you know, where the Heckinger Mall is over near the Arboretum near Bladensburg. People will talk about, you know, walking past that lot all the time and just remembering that it used to be a farm. So whenever you meet old-time Washingtonians, they'll tell you all the places in the city where they remember as kids, it being green, where food was grown, um, all the way up until the 90s, there were farms. That The 1990s? Yeah. That's crazy. There used to be a really, really big farm on the St. Elizabeth's campus. And their um, primary goal was to grow food um, to give away. Interesting. Wow. So so people were growing for a long time, and then there was sort of this... I guess, like several decade long gap when people were not, you know, I'm sure there's, there's probably, I don't know a lot about DC's network of community gardens, but cause oh, yeah. I'm from New York, but I'm sure people have been growing food also, throughout that time. But, totally. Yeah. yeah. And of course the victory gardens were mm. really big here um, right. during the world war two era. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think about even like the old soldiers home, the armed forces retirement home, that was one big cattle ranch. Hmm. Um, north of Florida Avenue all the way up into this part of Adams Morgan also um, was a farm. And so Calorama Park, just within walking distance from where we are now, was a huge plantation. Um, And people have done a lot of interesting archaeological um, digs to try to find the history of that farm, both the people who owned the property, I think John Little was his name, Mm -hmm. but then they've also done really incredible research to look at um, the slaves that lived there. Wow. So how did you get acquainted with all this farm history in D.C.? Like, have you just read a lot about it? Or are there places where people can learn more about, like, the agricultural history of D.C.? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I think there's two parts of it for me. Is like I've been living in D.C. since 1999. Okay. And um, like I said before, I used to live in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So there's a guy here, Eddie Becker. I like to call him the Adams Morgan historian. <laughs> he just knows a lot about the history, and um, he gives tours. If you go on one of those websites, now I can't remember the name of it, that nonprofit organization that puts up the little signs in the old phone booths. Huh. Do you know what I mean? No, no. All over D.C., um, they do this in all different neighborhoods, and you can do like a walking tour and learn about the oh, history. Cool. Right. And so Eddie does this on occasion, and um, he, they also have paired up with some archaeologists and students from Howard University who did a really interesting project unearthing, uh, unearthing a former um, graveyard of previous former slaves and freed black folks over here at Walter Pierce. So anyway, so to answer your question, I guess I'm just kind of like interested in in my hometown and the history and some of it's related to farming and some of it's not. Um, But, you know, since I decided to start a farm here in the city where I was living in 2011, I just meet people. People will walk up to me. People will walk past the farm and say, what are you doing here? And they just like to tell stories. And I like to hear stories. I think that it's great to see folks with gray hair come by and tell me about what it used to be like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you said you started Three Part Harmony in 2011. Mm-hmm. So what was like what led up to establishing your own farm in DC? Like what was the inspiration? Well, I had in my mid 20s decided to change careers, and I started volunteering at a farm in Upper, Upper Marlboro. Um, and they offered me a job, and so I said sure, and I started <laughs> working at that farm part time. Um, stopped sending out resumes. And it just became like a rabbit hole. I call mm-hmm. it now my quarter-life crisis. I just was like, I worked part-time a couple seasons, and then I went full-time. And then somewhere at the beginning of 2010, I just I told my boss that I didn't want to keep driving 45 minutes to an organic farm anymore. Mm. Um, the, the drive was taking a toll on me, uh, and I just decided that I wanted to start a farm closer, either start a farm closer to where I lived or move to the farm mm-hmm. where I was going to be. And it just so happened in that same period, 2009, 2010, I was part of a group process. We um, bought a limited equity co-op together in D.C. And so as I thought about how terrible it would be to be straddled still in the two worlds, owning a home with four other people in Washington, but then perhaps owning property with other farmers where I was driving back and forth between the two, it didn't make sense. Mm. So that sort of like settled that decision for me and I had firmly decided and like embraced the idea that I would start a farm in DC even though I'd never gardened in my life the smallest acreage I had ever grown on was 20 Hmm. so um, it it, there was really a steep learning curve in the beginning I also didn't know anybody in DC who was doing food and farming projects right I had met all of a lot of the organic sustainable ag farmers in Maryland and Virginia and Pennsylvania and Delaware um, but I didn't, I had never, for example, been to Rooting DC, hmm. which is DC's biggest garden conference that happens every year. It's huge. Huh. So I had to hit the pavement and start like going around. And I literally just would call the organizations and ask if I could volunteer with them so that I could get to know them. Right. And then I went to Rooting DC and started introducing myself, meeting folks who would be my new peer group. Right. And it's, it's interesting. You said you worked on bigger farms, and yeah. so it was challenging to start a smaller operation. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little? Because I think like a lot of people would think it would be harder in the other direction, right? You'd be like, well, I need to scale up, or how do you... But what, what was challenging about growing in a small space? 
I just sort of like when you start out the season in the middle of January and sit down and make a crop plan on a spreadsheet, I was thinking of tomato seedlings in the multiplier of 128, Mm. like the cell, you know, I was thinking like, (laughs) I'm going to have 128 Cherokee purples and I'm going to have 128 green zebras. And um, I just had a hard time imagining I would have any less than 10,000 tomato plants. Right. And uh, so that's not quite on a consumer scale what a CSA member wants. Um, It was hard in the first year. I remember we would have like six weeks in a row. The members would get like 10 pounds of tomatoes. And then the next six weeks in a row, it would be like 10 pounds of zucchini. I just had a hard time planting less than 10 plants at a time, even though I was on a tiny scale. Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And what about the the land that you are on? So, you know, um, for young and beginning farmers, and I mean, you weren't a beginning farmer. You had a lot of farming experience, but starting your own farm as a beginner, um, land access is the biggest issue that that people talk about how difficult was it to find an actual plot of land yeah it was then and still is now the single biggest hurdle i think that young farmers have to overcome so when i had made that decision to start a farm in dc i started scouting land and uh the first criteria is that it needed to be within a 15 minute bike ride of my house Mm. So if I wasn't going to drive 45 minutes out to Prince George's County, I also wasn't going to drive 45 minutes to get to the other side of town in DC right. traffic. Right. So it'd be, you'd be driving maybe two miles, but it would exactly. take just as long. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, and people knew that I was looking for land. So people would call me, email me, text me, hey, do you know about this lot? Mm. And I just created a spreadsheet and started writing down like all of the addresses and square lots and then looking them up on the property tax records to see who owned the property so that I could approach the landowner for a lease. Mm. And I mean, what about cost? Because in DC, I mean, you're, you're yeah. finding land in a city where everything is so much more expensive potentially than in a rural area. It's true. But if you look at per acreage prices inside the beltway or even just outside the beltway, mm-hmm. you would have to be waking up and packing a truck at three o'clock in the morning to be commuting into DC markets from a place where land is affordable. Hmm. So when I started looking at those numbers, I mean like a million dollars could have been a hundred million dollars. I still didn't have it. Right. So it just seemed like I was thinking about as a person who didn't have a land trust or ha- have a trust fund. Have a trust fund. Right. Um, Freudian slip. <laughs> or I wish I had trust. a land trust. Yeah, either um, one. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't, I had like a few thousand dollars in my savings account and that mm. was it. And so it kind of didn't matter how much the land was worth. Yeah. I wasn't going to buy it. Right. So the piece of property that we're on now is a two acre parcel that's owned by an order of priests and oh. they've owned that property for more than a hundred years. Hmm. And it turned out to be number one on my wish list when I like made the spreadsheet and started looking at all of the different criteria and um, pros and cons of all the, the parcels. So um, I just cold called the head priest and asked for a meeting. This was in 2011. And I sat down in their conference room and pitched them this idea that I would start a farm in mm-hmm. D.C. on their property. And it turned out that this order of priests already had this idea that according to the Bible, according to the gospel, their beliefs... Um, creation care was really important for them. Hmm. And they actually have a theological um, training center in Missouri called La Vista. 
and they already had a CSA in Godfrey, Illinois. Wow. So um, I was sort of like preaching to the choir yeah. in a way. This head priest was really and into it. it's a perfect metaphor. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so she, Father Seamus Finn, he was totally a, about it, and he, um, he became my own internal adv- advocate within the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate and sort mm. of went to his brothers and was like, we should do this. So everything seemed like it was going great until then their lawyers came back to them and said, you know, this land is exempt because you have a religious exemption. And if you lease this property to a farm, they're going to come after you for the property taxes. The, the, they're going to go after the church. for the, the, Yeah, yeah. That, they were afraid that the Office of Tax and Revenue would come after them for the $50,000 a year uh, taxes on that $5.2 million property. Okay. So that sort of like turned us into this whole other direction that I didn't want to go in and didn't think that I would have to go in, which um, forced us to do this three-year policy campaign to create a farm bill in D.C. Right. so that we would have an ag exemption just like they do in the other outer-lying states. That, and, you know, I want to talk about that, that farm bill. So, so it was really a personal experience. Yeah. Literally, you're like, oh, this is happening right now, and we want to try to um, change this law. So did, I want to talk more about the farm bill and how, how you got that passed. And, but were you able to actually get it passed quickly mm-hmm. enough that it affected you and that, like, you were able to get that lease and they didn't, they got the tax exemption? Yeah, like, yeah. May, maybe when I'm 90, I'm going to be like, oh, that three years, it was so fast. <laughs> um, at the time, it didn't feel like it. every March I would look at my plans and what I wanted to do and and wonder, is this going to be the year? Am I going to get a lease this year? Or am I going to have to keep growing vegetables on this property and donating them? Because that had been like our interim solution. Oh, you were solution. growing and donating in the meantime? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. the priests got together with their lawyers and came up with this creative workaround. They were like, well, the thing that triggers the tax bill, right, is if we um, have commercial activity commercial. happening. Right. Mm. So why don't we just give you, Gail Taylor, a contract to grow vegetables from money out of your own pocket, donate the vegetables and not sell anything, and then that will be fine. And we'll just do that until the farm bill passes. And so we agreed, and three years in a row, we agreed again to do that until we finally got the bill passed. Wow. So what were, who are you donating the the vegetables to? The same soup kitchen that I still donate to, the um, Catholic workers over in Petworth. Okay. Um, There's a great um, group of folks, the Dorothy Day Catholic Workers, they and I met them when I first moved to DC in 1999. Mm. So, and they turned out to be actually my like interim business plan solution while we were waiting for the farm bill to pass. Is that I created a backyard style CSA. Got it. So people who wanted to let me use their yards for free or for 25 bucks, um, I would bike around to them all throughout the week, and then on the day of the CSA pickup, I would go to some or most of them and collect all the vegetables and wash them in my kitchen. And then the CSA members, all six of them would come to my porch. Wow. So this is a crazy time. This is like, you're growing all this food, but I mean, for you personally, that must've been really difficult, right? Because you're not, it wasn't like a commercial business yet. No, but I certainly hadn't quit my job. Uh, And then, so remember I had done this other parallel thing, um, creating a limited equity Mm co-op with these other four people which had a goal of providing affordable housing for ourselves. So I, I, in a way, this farm has been subsidized by the fact that my monthly expenses are extremely low, and I had this other job at the time that was paying them. Got so I, I didn't need to make money from the farm. Perfect. Okay. Um, 
So what is the, so I want to talk, I think after the break, we'll go back to um, the farm bill because I want to talk more about that. But um, just what does the farm look like today? So we're sort of like talking about, you know, all mm-hmm. this time leading up to it. What does it look like now? What are you growing? How big is it? Yeah. Tell us a little bit. Like, That's what I want yeah. to talk about the farm, all, all this policy stuff. Um, so we are growing vegetables on a half an acre. And then we have an eighth of an acre of cut flowers. Mm. Um, the land is mostly square and pretty flat. So it's great. That's great. Yeah. There's two rectangles um, that comprise this half an acre. And I um, have divided them all into three foot by 100 foot long semi-permanent beds. Um, and we have over the last eight years had... Um, sort of semi-permanent walkways where I've planted dwarf white clover. Um, Sometimes we'll just like mulch the pathways. Um, But both sides have uh, four sections of eight beds each. Mm. So we have 64 beds of growing space. When we started out the farm, the pH was 4.5. And it had just been a soccer field that had for 100 years not had anything really done on it. Right. So um, I actually for the first six years, put a lot of compost in, which is not how I learned how to grow vegetables. You don't put compost on 20 acres every year. It's really expensive. But we started out by, um, there's photos of this, I think, maybe on our website. We had donated, like, five-gallon buckets, and I would get compost delivered, Mm -hmm. and we would spread it out, like, ten buckets at a time, only in the growing space. Right. So we were just only like making sure that we were spreading our minimum amount of fertilizer and compost within the space we were growing. Mm-hmm. And if you, I think if you look at the photos from over the year, you'll see this like beautiful transition from like this pale, lifeless desert wasteland, right. no worms, to now today we have this like beautiful, vibrant soil, which I always like to remind people when they come to the farm is our first and foremost important crop is mm-hmm. the soil. Absolutely. That's where the, that's where you're going to get the healthy vegetables. It's that's where you're sequestering carbon. It's, I mean, it's the basis of everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. You asked me earlier about that mental transition I had to make between growing on a larger property Mm -hmm. and a smaller one. One of the things that I thought was interesting and fun was to try to play around with this idea of like um, companion planting and intercropping, Mm. because if I'm not relying on manual cultivation and like single row plantings then I can try to see what would happen if I planted these scallions and the lettuce heads at the same time in the same place, taking up, you know, nutrients and soil in a different way Mm. and then coming, going in at the same time, but coming out at a different time. It just sort of like allows us to maximize our space and maximize our production to become an incredibly productive growing space um, that is like, I think, unique on an urban scale like that. I mean, people do it like that on rural areas, yeah. but... No, it sounds really unique. Do you keep track of those, like, companion plantings and all mm-hmm. that? Do you sort of keep paperwork so that you can go back and say, oh, these these two work really well together? Or, like, is that a kind of data that you gather as you're going? Sure. I mean, so both rectangles have their own letter and numbering system to help mm-hmm. us keep track. And just like any farmer, I'm going out and doing a weekly field walk and going through all of the beds lettered like T1A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and writing down what is in it, when did it go in, is it direct seeded or transplanted, when are we harvesting it, how many times are we harvesting it, how many pounds, how many cuts of salad grains are we getting out of it? Are we getting like 
50 pounds in one cut, or are we getting like 75 pounds in two cuts? Those kind of data, yeah, we've been collecting. So a lot of data. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, but it's the same that everybody else is right, doing. Right, right. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think, like, I mean, we have some farmers that listen, but um, also a lot of people that don't, probably don't ever think about that aspect of farming, you know, like the, it's very technical. And, totally. You know. Um, um, anyway, we have to take a break. Um, <laughs> I'm like... Quick, we gotta we gotta um, hold off for a second. Um, we're gonna take a quick break for um, a message from sponsor, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit more about um, the policy and how you sell and other things. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in two thousand and eight, and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Gail Taylor from Three Part Harmony Farm. So we taught, we were just talking a little bit about what your farm looks like. Um, and, and you mentioned the soil um, as being really important to what you do. Um, I saw on your website that you use the term agroecology to describe what you do. Um, I think I think a lot of listeners probably have heard that word. Maybe some know what it is, but I also think that it kind of people define it in different ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that word means to you and what that philosophy looks like on the farm? Yeah, so um, I'm part of a, a group of folks called that do the people's agroecology process, mm. um, and I think the thing is. Everyone in the group, I think we all have a different way of saying what agroecology is. We had a um, retreat last year in Terrytown, mm. and um, the last thing that we did together was all write on a piece of paper, agroecology is, and then do like a little photo shoot like that. Um, for me, uh, agroecology is not just about what you're putting in to the soil in terms of, um, you know, fertilizer or whatever, mm -hmm. or like what you're spraying on 
um, all of these kinds of technical things that an organic certification are sort of like focused on is like how the mechanics of doing this. For me, agroecology is also more just about like the relationship with. So it's like my relationship with taking care of this land Mm -hmm. that is not just providing sustenance for us, but also has this like sacredness to it that I think needs to be valued. Um, I also think one of the things for me that's really important in remembering about agroecology is that um, while it can be transferable, like I could go to Alaska or Florida or California and have some things in common about how we farm. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that are just like regional specific, but also um, culturally specific that you, again, don't get on like an academic setting. Right. And I mean, is labor a part of, is that one of the considerations when you think about agroecology? I mean, you mentioned that it's like the people's agroecology process. Mm-hmm. And I think when I've heard people talk <clears throat> about it before, it seems to be one of the spaces where people talk a lot about labor rights and thinking about the people involved in agriculture. Whereas like if you talk about organic, for instance, that's not always a consideration, like thinking about actual people who grow the food. Yeah, I think we naturally in the people's agroecology process, and then we also have a subsection of the group that we we use the term Afroecology, mm-hmm. like in the Black Dirt Farm Collective that I'm also a member of. Um, we le- we tend towards more like social justice mm-hmm. values and progressive politics. So that kind of like um, not wanting to exploit labor, not wanting wanting to exploit the environment. For us, those things go together. Mm. Um, but the people in the people's agroecology process is more about just like valuing the farmer knowledge and sort of trying to get away from the idea that farmers don't know anything and we need the scientists to come onto our land like we need that extension agent to come and tell us how to do it Uh. and this is all about again valuing that local knowledge like somebody from far away could come and say this is how you get NPK and you need to add it like this and you need to measure it like that but then you go and you talk to people and they're like well for thousands of years we've been doing it like this and it works and it's great that's local knowledge that should be valued right that the people themselves should be able to feel empowered to share that with each other. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Okay. So I I also want to go back to when we were talking about the farm, you talked a little bit about what it looks like and what you're growing, but not about where all this food is ending up. Hmm. So um, (laughs) I think you have a CSA. Is that your main source of um, is that the, the main uh, yeah. market? I yeah, I, the farm that I trained on was primarily a CSA farm, and mm. so I brought that experience with me when I started Three Part Harmony Farm. Um, <clears throat> we have done a small amount of like wholesaling on the side. Um, for a couple of years, we've gone to a farmer's market. But two years ago, I just took a step back and looked at where all the numbers were for the business and just decided that we should drop out of that farmer's market where we were competing with actually somebody who is in my farmer's (laughs) co-op. There were just like three organic vegetable farmers there and it was like one too many. Right. And I was the smallest. Um, So I dropped out of that farmer's market and um, set about to do a three-year plan of doubling our CSA every year for three years in a row. And then also um, tried to increase other enterprises of the business that we're bringing in cash flow. Like we have a nursery business that has been important from the beginning, Mm. which was an accidental enterprise, actually, because it turned out it was like 
one of the main things that I could sell while we were waiting for the farm bill to pass because I had taken that $2,000 in my savings account and invested like 95% of it into a greenhouse that was in my backyard. And so when I figured out that the only barrier to selling the produce at the Oblate property were property taxes, but I had just bought this house with these other people, like, well, I know who's paying the property taxes on this property, so I guess that means everything on it can be sold. Um, And then that just, like, created this whole other side business that's become actually really important. And, like, this year, for example, we supplied um, hundreds of DCPS schools with um, plants for their spring and summer gardens. Oh, that's amazing. That was, like, a little tangent. Um, Oh, yeah. So, yes, we're a CSA farm. We're a CSA (laughs) farm. (laughs) How, How many members do you have? Oh, gosh, we're at like 215 shares right now, which is not quite the number of members. Um, I count our half share, single share as the share because it's like 85% of our members are single or two people living Mm. in in an apartment or in a group house, and they don't cook at home every night. Right. Pretty, they're pretty typical D.C. folks in our CSA. Yeah. And did they pick up the shares at the farm or do you have drop, uh, pickup sites around the city? We don't do any farm pickup. That's one thing, actually, that's prohibited in our lease. Mm. We're not allowed to have a lot of foot traffic on the property. Um, it's literally the backyard of priests. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. So um, the 2019 season, we did seven different distribution points in three different days. Oh, perfect. So I want to talk more about this policy. I just think it's so interesting. So you, you were, like, trying to solve for this, this situation with um, property taxes. And, I mean, did it, you know, I, I know obviously in that situation you're like, I need to figure this out so that I can start this farm. But um, I'm sure you were also thinking this must be, this is going to be a barrier for anybody who wants to do something like this, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So how did you go from that to, like, we're going to, write a piece of legislation? Like, did you go to a city council person? How did that process work? Yeah, at the time that I started to, um, like, realize what was standing in our way of starting the farm on that property, I already was a pro bono client of the American University Law School Clinic. So they um, have their three L's go through this clinic, and they can take on pro bono clients, and I'd ask them if they would help me try to figure out and navigate how to start three-part harmony farm in a city where at the time like if you go down to dcra and you pull up the like options in the drop down menu vegetable farm isn't really <laughs> one of them <laughs> you're like wait what you want to start a farm? like there's no there was no process there's nothing even, yeah. it took me three years to get insurance right. there was just like um in every single way because dc is not a state and we didn't have a state department of agriculture that already had this foundation of processes and ev- mm-hmm. every single thing. It was like the Wild West. Yeah. Every single thing I had to find a workaround or create a new way. So I just asked these law students to help me figure it out. And and they did. I went through three um, sets of three L's. They were really great. And when I um, approached them with this idea, like, hey, I want to do this thing. We need to figure out a way to make it possible for farms to lease land without incurring huge property taxes mm-hmm. for the property owner. They were totally um, into it, and it just launched us into this whole other project together. Right. Um, and then at the same time, I approached a city council member, David Grasso, um, to take it on. I knew that he would be into it. He mm. grew up on a farm, um, and I had worked with his mom 
in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I knew a little bit about him and his family, where he was coming from, and I knew that he would be interested in it. Got it. And then the, the legislation ultimately became, more, <clears throat> became about more than property taxes, right? Like this is sort of, um, I mean, I, I guess I'm assuming, but from what I've read about it, it's, it's sort of like a, a bill that, is, that makes it easier for people to set up urban farms in D.C. overall. Like does, is there more, are there many components to it? Yeah, and it was from the beginning. In the same year that I started Three Part Harmony Farm, I also started this farmer co-op community mm-hmm. farming alliance um, with Zachary Curtis, who had Good Sense Farm and Apiary, and then Holly Pole Cavana, who has Little Redbird Botanicals. Okay. And so the three of us were sort of sitting down together and saying, how can we, with, we knew that we had one shot. It's not like every year you're introducing new farm legislation in D.C. Yeah. So we really wanted it to be comprehensive. We wanted it to be able to cover other people doing other kinds of things besides what we were doing. And I was just... 100% clear that it had to not only be about people who were going to grow vegetables in the ground, mm-hmm. like I wanted to do. Um, and so that was another reason why I wanted the law students to kind of help us think out of the box. Right. Um, and we talked to a lot of other people like, what is the acreage that you should say defines farm? Mm. All of these things were really important in looking at how DC would create the parameters around what does a farm look like? And who gets to call it a farm? Is it how much money you make? Is it how much space you're using? Right. All the other states had already figured this out according to their own um, situation, unique situation. We're in the situation where we need a farm to also be on a rooftop. Right. Yeah. So then what year did it it pass? It ended up passing. Yeah. Yeah. December of 2014. Okay. And since then, um, I mean, have you seen... A lot of effects of no. that. <laughs> no, no, really? no. Huh. In terms of like, there's not that much growth no. in urban farms in DC. No. Huh. Yeah, it's too bad. You know, um, there was like this special line item in the bill that said that um, an exempt property owner could pass that exemption on to the farmer, mm. um, which was written for us, our situation. Right. So that meant in 2015, I got my first lease and it was fine. And then I sort of like got on with the business of running a farm. Mm-hmm. The other parts of the bill have not really been implemented. Uh. There's one part of the bill that requires DC to make a minimum number of city-owned lots available for farms. And they've just been stuck in red tape. It's a combination of like red tape, bureaucracy, and not really knowing. Cause the, one of the problems is that nobody in DC really knew anything about farms. Yeah. Nobody in the city did. Um, and I testified twice before the city council and tried to, like, encourage us to get some kind of, like, reciprocity agreement with some of these outer lying counties that could come in with expertise and help us. Mm. Because the Department of General Services that's in charge of giving out leases to private people for city-owned buildings, lots, whatever, right. they don't know anything about farming. Hmm. And they took on this role because it was in their jurisdiction, still not knowing anything. And it it just has been kind of actually, to be honest, it's been painful to watch that process. The Food Policy Council and the two co-chairs of the Urban Ag Working Group have tried their best to get the process to move along, and it just stalls at every point. It's so crazy because I think there's, there's a lot of cities that are looking at passing laws like this and it, it is kind of framed in this way that you think, oh well we'll we'll pass this legislation and it will it will change things and it'll make it easier for people to set up farms. And in this case it's like it's the first step. 
right? And now there's, and now it's like, if you really wanted to make it easier, you'd have to keep working on it and keep working on it. And um, I mean, I wonder if the lessons you've learned from this process, like, has it, has anyone from other cities come to you to talk about legislation they're working on? Or? Not yet. No. It was the other way around. You know, yeah. when we started in 2011, I was calling people in Baltimore and mm. going on the internet, looking at what they were doing in Richmond, California. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we were behind right. in D.C. Well, I mean, in New York, they, they've been trying to pass comprehensive urban ag legislation for, I guess now, I want to say it was like 2017 when it was first introduced and it hasn't gotten through. And it is funny. It's just funny to me because there's this sense <laughs> that like, we'll just change these rules and, and then it'll be easier for firms to get permits and it'll just, it'll, it'll all work. And um, I think, yeah, it's, it's just a good, good lesson that like, getting the policy passed doesn't always mean it's going to be the end result you want. The thing is, on paper, the bill that we passed in its time was the best one. Of course. That, like, we really did think about everything, and and on paper it looks great. And from since then, as soon as it was passed, the city has only sort of, like, blocked us at every pass, like there, even in the next year, they wanted to decrease the number of lots that they were required to give out, and yet Anyway, here we are, and they still haven't given out anyway any. So I don't right. know. Um, it's a little bit hard. When we were going through the process, I had approached DC Greens about helping with the final push, and they came and helped us get over the finish line. It was really important. And Lauren Schweider Beal, the executive director at DC Greens, had the foresight to um, say we should have a companion bill to set up the DC. Food Policy Council, which exists today. Mm. And so that's how we ended up with two pieces of legislation. So, you know, the Food Policy Council has been meeting and they have all these subgroups. And I really think for us now in this moment is the question of like, is the political power there matching where the political will is? Right. Because so far it's unclear whether or not people in D.C. want to have a city where we care about food security and food sovereignty, where we actually are putting our money where our mouth is and supporting farms that are growing food for people, Mm. or whether or not we still want to go back to be the city we were in the 2000s, which is like, we have all these gardens where kids can come and dump dump an entire packet of carrot seeds in one spot, and then they learned all these great things, and they go home, and somebody fixes it when they leave, and that is what we are good at, and that's great. We don't need any more of that. The question is now, are we going to grow food for ourselves? That That's what Three Part Harmony Farm wanted to show that we could do. Yeah. And we have shown that even without the city's support. Right. What do you, what do you think needs to happen for other people to follow in your footsteps? Like, are you, you said you started an alliance in D.C.? Yeah. Can, um, yeah. It's an urban-rural partnership, actually. Okay. Um, like, you're grow- you are this example of someone growing food in DC for people, you know, people sort of growing food for themselves. Um, how, what needs to happen next, do you think, to get more people following? I know? think people have to want it. I think, I mean, even though I, I have a lot of critique with the way that the city has not done what it could have, at the end of the day, it's not the city government officials who can go out there and recruit people on the street to be farmers. Mm-hmm. If somebody has the vision to start a farm and do what I did, they need to really be able to sit down and say, this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to make it work. Like, right? Like, literally, in order to get the lease that I wanted, I put a line item in a bill. Right. And, and then I was off to the races. Yeah. I think, you know, if, if the will, if the interest is not there, 
then maybe we are just a city that has a lot of children's gardens. And that's fine. People can go to the farmer's market and get their vegetables from Maryland and Pennsylvania and Delaware. But is it, do you think that's fine? Like, are, what, are the, what is the unique benefit that you see to growing food within the city as opposed to buying it? Well, for one thing, growing food in the city is an answer to how climate change is affecting our food system. And we, on Saturday, we had a fall festival at the farm, and I was showing people, like, this is what happens when you grow food on a small scale intensively with creating this bed system with the walkways. Even after five inches of rain, mm. we can still come in here and harvest and do all of the work that we need to do because of the way that the farm is set up, because of the way that it's designed. Um, we're not in a situation where it's raining and raining and raining, and then in the three hours that it's dry enough for me to go out there and plow my field, it's dark right. or I'm sleeping. You know, like w now we have wetter springs longer into the summer. Um, we're going through extreme rain, extreme drought. All of these temperature fluctuations are just making it harder and harder and harder for people to produce food on that larger acreage scale. Right. We can do it in the city. We can feed ourselves in the city. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a great place to end. Thank you, Gail, so much for being here. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.